Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. My name is Mark. If we haven't met, it's great to be uh, having the opportunity today to open God's Word and share with you. Before I put up today's text, I just wanted to sort of capture the essence of what I'm going to be speaking about today. This is sort of a one-off sermon, something I felt was really important to communicate before, as was just shared, we enter into the season of Advent. The key idea I want to share with you today is that often the point the moment in which we grow the most in God is also the moment which often is the most painful. And because of that, we can find ourselves recoiling, moving backwards, not moving through that point. To dig into this and to understand more, we're going to open God's word, the scriptures. We're going to begin at the book of Jeremiah with a verse that we've really felt the Lord share with us that we've taught on numerous times, but I want to sort of expand it a little bit. It says this in Jeremiah 6, verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you'll find rest for your souls. This is an encouraging, inspiring verse. It speaks of an ancient path, which we can head towards a path perhaps forgotten, but once we walk down that path, we begin to again walk with God. And this is the good way. We're encouraged to walk in it and we'll find rest in our souls. This is God's word, but also just this couple of sentences would be absolutely brilliant on a mug in a Christian's homeware store, or perhaps just in the top right hand of an image that you could put on your wall of a beautiful flowing waterfall. Lovely, inspiring, wonderful. But to fully get the sense of what Jeremiah is teaching here, what God is saying to Jeremiah and the people at this time, we need to read on. Read not just verse 16, but also 17. So I'm going to go back to the top and say it again. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, and this is where the but begins to break the mug. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. So what this is showing us is, yes, there is the good way, the good way, which is God's way, the ancient path, which is rest for our souls, but counterintuitively, not everyone's going to want to go down that path. Why is that? If this is the ancient path which leads to God's good way and it's rest for your souls, why is not everyone going down this path? In fact, it actually has in that but, the but is almost like a fork in the road, there's actually another way that people will choose, one of not listening, one of refusal. This is a crossroads. The first part of the sentence is you stand at the crossroads, which is a place of focus. It's, it's a place of discernment. It's a place of meditating on which way you're going to go. You are presented with a challenge. It's a crossroads. It's not just one road that leads to the ancient paths, that leads to the way, that leads to the rest for your soul. 
Now, we see this concept of two paths in which we could go all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 35 verse 8 says of a great road that will go through a once deserted land. It will be named the Highway of Holiness. Now, who would want to go through the great highway in the deserted lands? God's highway, the highway of holiness. But Isaiah notes that it will be only for those who walk in God's ways. He says fools will never walk there. Now, what it's meaning here is not fools as people who have a lack of intelligence. Fools here in the Hebrew understanding is people who practice ways that are unwise, foolishness as the opposite of God's wisdom. Two paths. We see this in the New Testament. Jesus himself teaches in Matthew 7, verse 14, where he says, But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. We find ourselves standing at a crossroads. Now, we see these two paths, these two options vividly as what happens in that upper room explodes out and we move beyond the record of Scripture into the history period known as the early church. And we know the stories of people who chose the ancient path. People like Felicity, Polycarp, Ignatius of Antioch who because of choosing the ancient path, which is narrow, experience an incredible cost. They follow Jesus into giving everything their life. These are people who were martyred in the arenas of the Roman world for their faith. People like Perpetua, someone who we should know their name. Why? Because she is one of the only women writers of the ancient world whose writings have survived. She was 22 years old. She was from a wealthy background. She had high social status in the Roman world in Carthage where she lived. She was just married and she just had given birth to a child who she was nurturing. But her refusal to go down the path of foolishness and her yes to the ancient path that leads to life, the ancient path that leads to God, meant she refused to stop following the presence of God even when it led to pain. And this young woman, 22 years old, with a newly born, just married, with her whole life ahead of her, so many options, voluntarily chooses to not renounce her faith, and this meant martyrdom. A public death, a humiliation, which was known at the time as the spectaculars. These events which happened in the arenas of the Roman world. And in her hometown of Carthage, she was led into the arena in front of the baying crowds in which she lost her life for the sake of her saviour. Now, we know some of these stories. Most people know that in the arenas of the ancient world, if you've been around church and read Christian history, you know there were the martyrs who perhaps were killed by wild beasts or some were burnt alive like Polycarp. Others were killed by the sword like Perpetua. But interestingly, there were still those who chose another path. The crossroads still existed even in the midst of a persecuted church. The theologian Tertullian wrote an entire book imploring the church of his day. The book was called Despectalios. It's my Latin, not the 
Anyone's going to call me on my Latin pronunciation? And this implored Christians not to attend the spectaculars and the bloodthirsty games in the arenas and the Colosseums of the Roman world. So before the church too passed, the way towards putting everything before the cross and the way to standing as a spectator high in the stands, watching this incredible, violent, depraved spectacle. Two paths, the spectacular versus the narrow path, the living temple of the living God or the Colosseum, spectator or disciple, the way of a worldly faith of compromise or the way of the cross. Eugene Peterson sketches this out for what it looks like us today in the contemporary church. He writes, some people come to church looking for a way to make life better, to feel good about themselves, to see things in a better life. They arrange a ritual, hire a preacher to make that happen for them. Other people come to church because they want God to save and rule them. They accept the fact that there's temptations and sufferings and sacrifices involved in leaving a way in life in which they are in control and plunging into an uncertain existence in which God is in control. One group of people sees religion as a way to a successful, happy living, noting that nothing that, sorry, nothing that interferes with the success or interrupts the happiness will be tolerated. The other group sees religion as a way in which hurt, flawed, and damaged people become whole in relation to God. Anything will be accepted. Mockery, pain, renunciation, self-denial in order to deepen and extend that reality. One way is the way of enhancing what I want. The other way is a commitment of myself to become what God wants. Always and, for ev and, always and everywhere, these contrasting expectations are in evidence. Two paths. Returning to Jeremiah, for Jeremiah, the people he's preaching to did not want to walk in the ancient paths. They preferred the other contemporary prophets, people such as Pashur, who remained popular and beloved by the crowds because they told the people what they wanted to hear. They preach what we might call today simply warm fuzzies. And in the midst of this, as Jeremiah experiences the backlash of preaching the truth, God says to him in Jeremiah 6, verse 27 of his call. Jeremiah is called to be a particular role amongst these people. God says to him, I have made you a tester of metals and my people the ore. Ore is liquid metal. That you may observe and test their ways. Jeremiah is commissioned, given a role by God to be what we call in English an assayer. In Hebrew, a bachon. This is someone who is called to test the quality of the value of metals. Except that Jeremiah is not to test the quality of metals, but rather the quality of the human hearts of the people. And he's to do this not by standing at a distance like a scientist or an analyst, distance from the people. He's actually called to do this. The Hebrew is actually yada, to know them, to relationally be amongst them, which means it's going to hurt. And he's called to test them by preaching the reality of the cost of growth that God calls of us. He is doing this in contrast to those who simply just want to tickle the ears of their listeners, the preachers and prophets who are the most popular. 
who tell the people they can worship, but worship in ways which suit you. Offering them spiritual food that is filled with low nutrients. Jeremiah, in contrast, must ask the people to truly change their hearts. In Jeremiah 7, verses 2 to 8, it says this, God says to him, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates, that's the temple gates, to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the presence of God, in the temple. In the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever, but look, You are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Now, the fact that Jeremiah is called to preach at the gates shows that worship is still happening. The people are still turning up to the temple. But there's almost this possessiveness over the temple. They see it as something which serves them versus them serving God. Two ways, two paths. A way of worship in which we give everything to God or a way of worship in which we repurpose the temple, God, to serve us. And so what God is saying is, Jeremiah must, through his preaching, through his leadership, create an environment where people truly grow into giving it all. Were they tested? But were they ready to push through this barrier? Now, without being willing to do this, Jeremiah's message is saying to the people that they would not just lose their land, but they would lose the temple, the presence of God. And this happens through something that we call the exile when Babylon from the north comes down and takes the best and the brightest back to Babylon. The temple is broken down and the people lose everything. Now in time, the people would return. The temple would be rebuilt, but something was missing. The temple exists in Jesus' time. But Jesus, like Jeremiah and so many prophets before, actually continued this charge against the people and the temple. Jesus goes and turns over the tables in the temple, making this prophecy that it would not survive. Seemingly unthinkable in this time, this giant structure would not survive. Yet not long after Jesus dies and is resurrected, the temple would indeed fall in 70 AD, ruined and looted by the Romans. I'm just going to pause the sermon here and give you some, I don't know, background DVD commentary. Occasionally at home, I'll be reading and I'm quiet and I'm studying or something. And Trudy will be also in the same room or or nearby. And it's nice and quiet. Kids are at school, enjoying the silence and I'm reading. And then often I will just get this point where I just learn something and I go from quiet to almost like a sort of like, explore. it's like that meme um, that you see of the guy from that show. Oh, yes, yes. What a team, wow. This is literal footage from my home. I had a haircut yesterday, so you may not recognize me. But this is, the, I, this is just fantastic. Can, I, can we just give a round of applause for just incredible, Meme ministry, you've ministered to me. 
That is me, like, and I had one of these moments. And often what will happen is I'll have one, and she's like, is everything okay? Is there a spider? What's going wrong? Are you okay? It's like, no worries. My mind has just been blown. And then I'll try and explain it. It's really complex. Like, it's like part of a sermon. Anyway, just welcome to our house. My plan was to contrast, as I'm, as I'm learning and reading about this sermon, between we have these two paths, the living temple of God, where we worship and place everything before him, and the arena. All for God, the Colosseum, temple versus arena, and arenas aren't just what is in the Roman world. Our world today is builds these arenas, be they sporting arenas, be they concert venues, be they malls, be they the internet, these social spaces created to serve us, where we be spectators in the spectaculars of our day. Are they all wrong? No. But when they are the center, and when they are everything, and when they are driving the cart, this is when they go wrong. So before us, two paths, the temple and the arena. So that was the link. That's where I was going. I'm still going there. But what blew me away was this detail. Now, what's interesting about the Colosseum, which is the arena, Roman arena par excellence, still standing today. The temple does not stand in Jerusalem, but the arena, the Colosseum still stands in Rome. In fact, they're renovating it currently. Some companies come and spend all this money on it. And what struck me is the Colosseum is not just a secular thing. It's not just like, oh, we'll do this secular thing. They go to the Roman temple on, on Saturday and they're in the temple on, uh, on the arena on Sunday. No, actually it was religious. If you think about it, this was the sacrifice of powerless people. These people, gladiators fighting. This was a martial military religion that the Romans followed with gods like Mars. It was, a, it was a religion of blood and sacrifice and victory and power and empire. So this was a religious ceremony that was going on in the Colosseum. But you participated in it, not through worshipping and giving everything. You sat in the stands and you were a spectator, which comes from, uh, comes from spectacular, spectacularis. So you were participating in a religious ceremony. But this is what blew me away when my, my, I had that moment, um, that meme. The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. It's destroyed in 70 AD by a Roman general called Vespasian. There is a power battle happening in Rome. And Vespasian comes back to Rome, and because he's won these victories in the war in Judea, where Jerusalem is, that he then gains power by doing, in the Roman world, you would gain power by doing incredible big public works. And this is the bit that blew me away. How did they fund the Colosseum? Vespasian comes and builds the Colosseum in Rome. The Colosseum begins its construction in 72 AD. The Colosseum is funded by what Vespasian stole from the temple in Jerusalem. That is not just a historical fact. That is a deeply spiritually significant fact. And I think almost at that point in the world, we move from these worlds where the ancient world is filled with temples and people worship and there's temples in Jerusalem, but then the nations had their own temples. It was a battle of temples. And we move from the temple where people would come and worship and sacrifice to a different concept of a different kind of temple, the Colosseum, in which we come and we spectate and it's all for us and it's filled with violence and gore and titillation. And that actually is the value of our day. 
It's constantly before us. Two paths, temple, Colosseum. Now, this means that when we live our life, those two paths always before us, a kind of faith in which we walk the narrow path, the ancient path, it's ancient and it's forgotten, often because it's really difficult. It asks everything of you. Or another kind of path where it can even have Christian veneer and lacquer painted over it, but it's a kind of thing that's like, come, yeah, be part of this, but just up in the spectator, up in the stands, it's going to deliver stuff for you. The Christian arena. So to help us understand this and how this works, I created this sort of thing, I called it the growth quadrant. That's what Daniel and I came up with this morning as we were, we weren't talking about memes at that point. And you can put almost any sort of activity that you do as a human being into these four things. Down the bottom there, we have low cost, low growth. Now there's certain things that you do, like just watching mindless TV. You didn't pay anything for it. It's not growing you. You're just there, just watching it. Doesn't grow you spiritually, doesn't cost you much. This could be just be mundane things. This could be, I don't know, cooking spaghetti, staring into space. A lot of our life is this stuff, and that's fine. That's just part of what it is to be human. There's another thing that we often do, and this is actually more the way of foolishness. This is stuff which is high cost. This is gonna cost you lots of money. This could cost you social standing. This could cost you heaps of work and you give so much for it and it doesn't grow you at all spiritually. So much of the way of the world is to actually encourage you to be in that bottom quadrant. High cost, low growth. Some of our world encourages us to buy material things, to spend on experiences, to go and do things which actually does not grow us spiritually, even may warp us spiritually, and it asks a high, high cost of us. We are a culture which is going into insane levels of debt, high cost, low growth. Now, as we get above the line, you find another sector, another part of the quadrant. And this is the place where you'll find yourself sometimes as a follower of Jesus. And this is not a bad place. In fact, I'm going to say that often you'll spend a lot of your time in this space. You may come to a church. You may be part of a good group of Christian friends. You may have a Christian family, or you might find yourself just doing certain habits, things which are actually richly delivering for you. You may decide that at the beginning of your day, you're going to start it with a quiet time. And instead of just sort of running around and looking at your phone, you get up a little bit earlier, you get your coffee, you pray, you, you, you learn stuff, you're reading a good devotional, you're listening to Christian podcasts, you go to a conference, you're experiencing some great resources, you're surrounded by good people who want to grow, and you find yourself growing. But it's not super high cost. It may be, you get up 20 minutes earlier, you have to read a book. You come to church every week. Now again, nothing wrong with this. Large parts of our life are going to be this. It's totally fine. What this is is a season of grace. And they're fantastic. It's like you're in a river. Whoa, that could have been dangerous. You're in a river and it's just like you're just going with the stream and you're in a high growth stream just because of where you've placed yourself. God's placed you low cost, high growth. But inevitably, inevitably in life, and this may be you now, you may think back to a season 
you may have never experienced. You may have just been in the low cost, high growth part and you'll hit one of these, I promise you, at some point. You'll be going along, you're in the stream, I'm growing, this is great, feels good, life's getting better, I'm growing deeper in Jesus, great people around me. And then you'll hit something and it's like the crossroads springs up before you. You're back at that Jeremiah 6 point and you're stopped and you're standing between these two crossroads. It may be conflict. It may be a crisis. It may be a temptation. It may be a season of significant pain. And for you to keep going, it's not like just like sitting in the raft and floating towards growth. At this point, you have to make a decision of which way you're going to go. It's difficult because at these moments, you know that it's going to be high, high cost. It could be cost socially. It could be cost relationally. It could be cost in you not getting what you want. It could be cost in that people around you will mock you for your faith. It could be cost that you're in pain and part of you just wants to sit in that pain and not come out of that pain and stay in a kind of learned helplessness. It may be the pain of having to forgive someone. You don't want to forgive because everything in you feels that that person does not deserve your forgiveness. And it's that moment, you know when it comes. You feel it. This is not just an intellectual thing. This is a feeling in your guts when you know that you've come before a crossroads. Now, often what happens, because sometimes the Christian world is portrayed as just like, get to a church or get to an environment which is low cost, high growth. And then you get to this and it's difficulty and you think something must be going wrong with my life or my faith. No. If you are a human being following Jesus, you are gonna hit certain points of high cost, high growth. Might be one or two in your life, this might feel like it's your whole life all the time. We have different paths we're called to work, walk. Now, I think one of the reasons this is difficult, we hit a kind of membrane where often we stop. We stand at the crossroads and we get stuck because humans often will resist the change that brings the most growth. That's true in all areas of life, but it's particularly true in our spiritual lives. Why? Because often the point that brings the most growth spiritually is often the place that is the most painful point. Why? When you get to that point and you stop and stand and the crossroads are before you, temple or Colosseum, high cost and high growth, or not much cost at all, but not much growth, is that when you get there and you choose to go down that narrow path, which you know is going to cost you everything, but you also know is going to push you deeper into God, is that you enter some battles. The first battle is kind of an internal battle, and it's a battle with the concept that the New Testament calls the flesh. Now, we can misread this and think it's like, you know, just like flesh and bone, our physical bodies. But the Greek actually is sarx, S-A-R-X. And sarx is that part of you which is resisting God, the part of you which is filled with pride, insecurity, the part of you which gets easily offended, the part of you which doesn't want to forgive, the part of you which wants the things of the world. Those parts of you which are still, in a sense, even though Jesus died for you and through grace given you eternal life and had the victory, we live in the in-between, the here and the not yet, and there's parts of us which still do battle against God's good for us. And so to choose the way of high cost, high growth, the cost is there must be a death to self. 
Growth requires a sacrifice. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Really key to understand this. Jesus is not saying, go on the cross so you can die and you can, through works, be your own saviour. No, Jesus did that. Jesus died on the cross, took sin upon him, defeated death, defeated the enemy, rose on the third day. That work has been done. What Jesus is saying is there's points where you are going to actually have to sacrifice something. That is the way of the cross. And sacrificing what we want goes against everything the world tells us whether that's something that's shiny and attractive and seductive, or maybe something that's bitterness or hurt or unforgiveness. The second thing that happens is not an internal battle. That happens. That's a key part of this path. But the second battle is often external battles. There's a book called Leadership on the Line, two, I think it's Heffetz and, and Linsky, not Christians, but they made this really key point. They say, first of all, Anyone who wants to advance a program of positive change as a leader. So yes, it's people who've got roles, but also it could be someone in a family, in a workplace, in a relationship. Anyone who wants to advance a a, a program of positive change is a leader. The second thing they say, and this is so refreshing, contrasting 99.9% of leadership books. 99.9% of leadership books are like, here's a leader, here's how you be inspirational, here's how you communicate, do this and people will love you. What Heffes and Litsky say is people resist change because change requires sacrifice. So it doesn't matter how nice you are, how good a communicator you are, how lovely your manner is. You advance a positive, a, pro, a, a program of positive change, people will come against you. They don't want to hear the message that you have to grow and give up something, so they will see you as the enemy, and instead of shooting the message, they shoot the messenger. So this may happen if you're a leader in a workplace, but it may also happen if you go deeper with God and choose the way of high cost, high growth, and you've got friends who are all been happy just going down the river, growing, low cost, and then a high cost moment comes, that's going to be a challenge to other people who don't want to take that high cost option. And people resist you. This is why Jesus says, you know, he comes with a sword. Jesus doesn't come to divide. But what he's saying is when you fully follow my gospel, this is even going to cause division in families. We see the bit where Jesus' mother and families come and say, Jesus, stop, this is ridiculous. Come on, come on. Yep, keep going to synagogue. Keep doing the good Jewish stuff, but just don't take this too far. They don't want him to go all the way. The second thing is that what I have noticed is people will often get, follow this with people pastorally. I've seen this in my own life. You'll often get to a bit where you're at the crossroads and it's high cost versus high growth or the way which is like another way, an off-ramp. And the enemy will come after you in ways. He does not come after you when you're in any of the other three quadrants. When you're in high cost, low growth, the enemy's like, thank you for doing my job for me. Just keep going. When you're in low cost, low growth, enemy's just like, yeah, just leave them there. They're in stasis. But the minute that you're at one of those moments and you know there's this, this 
decision before you and you feel drawn, the Spirit's drawing you into making that decision of high cost, high growth for God, to put it all on the line, to make a decision which is going to be unpopular, to make a decision which is going to deny your flesh and what you want. You've just got a target on you. And weird stuff happens. And the enemy comes again. Spiritual warfare is really real. Now, I'm not a devil behind every bush person, but I have just seen again and again that at those moments when people are in that upper quadrant, the enemy's going to like send so much at you. This is why these moments have to be filled with prayer, intercession. We don't need to be afraid of the devil when we speak out the name of Jesus, but we need to be aware that at these moments, the enemy comes against. And I wonder, just as I say this, I just have a, 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 a sense from the spirit that there's some people perhaps been in that quadrant, maybe one person in this room, and the enemy has been coming against you, and the enemy's lie is that it's because you're thinking of this, this is coming against you and wanting you to pull back. An internal battle with your flesh, an external battle with others and with the enemy. But often what happens is a third kind of battle. Now, have you ever been invited to an after party? It's nice being invited to an after party because after parties go like this. Look, there's a bunch of people coming to the work party. Everyone's going to be there. But a few of us, which is code language for the really cool elite people. <laughs> the really cool people, we're going to have an after party afterwards. Oh, wow. So I didn't just get access level B, I get access level A to the after party. So you feel like, wow, this is very exclusive. I didn't just get the pleb party. I got the awesome people party. Why? Because I'm just realizing that I'm one of the awesome people. <laughs> so after parties are actually an access to exclusivity. When I talk to you about something else, internal battle, external battle, after battle. Often you will move through a time of saying, yes, Jesus, I'm willing to put it all down. I'm willing to let the flesh just get torn off me. I'm willing to surrender. I don't, I'm going to put down what I want. I'm going to say yes to you. And it's high cost and it's high growth. And then you get through it. And then there's an after battle. And after battles are exclusive, but not in a cool way. They're exclusive in that you're exclusively going through tremendous pain after you thought you just had a victory. And they are not fun. I clearly, clearly remember an after battle that I went through. There was a period in Red's history, there's a bunch of stuff we were going through. There's a bunch of stuff I was going through personally. It was such a tough season. And not only was it a tough season in the church, there was a tough season personally. And in the midst of that, this turned into a mental health challenge and battle for myself. It was horrible. I want to go through it again. And I got through it. And then I felt God one day, like there's books I've written, which I'm like, that's interesting. I want to write about that. And then there's this particular book, Facing Leviathan, was a book where I was flying from Sydney to Melbourne. I was having, I was like going through this tough season. Like, I don't want to go through it again. I want to have a pause from writing books because I'm exhausted. God, there's such hard work. What is this all about? And somewhere over the Murray River Arena, high up in the air, in a plane, we're flying, flying back from Melbourne, from Sydney to Melbourne. I just felt God say, you have to write about this. I'm like, no. And then like 10 minutes later, maybe over Albury, I don't know. I'm like starting to write notes for this book that God wanted me to write. And he felt God say, I want you to write a book about what leading's really like 
what sacrifice is really like and what it's like leading with a mental health challenge. And I'm just like, no, no. I go into it and I write this book. Now, most books are almost like a, a, a wonderful sort of, uh, you know, relationship that goes sour. It's like you get this idea and it's like someone's like winking at you across from a, or fluttering their eyelashes at you across from the room of a party. Like, I've got this idea. Temple. Arena. Temple. Arena. Wow. The looting of the temple actually paid for the arena. This is fantastic. You want to talk to me? Book idea? Ooh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to open my notebook. You want to take me out for a drink? This is incredible. <laughs> no, you're incredible. And there's this like process and you get excited and you're writing down ideas and you're telling a few people. And then there's a bit where you go and meet the person's parents and you ask for their hand in marriage. That's the publisher saying, yes, this is now book contract. And you write it and it's fantastic. The first few chapters and it's all flowing. It's exciting and it's wonderful. But then the honeymoon period wears off. You start seeing other wonderful ideas across the room at the party. <laughs> this idea becomes annoying. They've got problems. They don't structure themselves in a coherent, logical art, you know, argument. Then they start like getting up and like, they look this filled with spelling errors and grammatical problems. And then they're just a horrible, and you're just grinding it out. And what was a, a tantalizing, exciting relationship becomes utter drudgery. And then you get to this point where finally, finally, you can press send to your publisher, and your words are like, I am sick of you, I never want to see you again. Go to my publisher and get out of my house. Be gone, send, boom. And it's the best feeling in the world when you've finished it, and it's like, I'm done. I went through that process completely differently with Face of the Father. I didn't want to write this thing. It was painful. It was tough. It was horrendous. But I got to the end, and at that moment where I'm just like, send, go, buy, sick of you. I got to the end, and I didn't want to press send. I remember my finger hovering over the return button because it was exposing. It was my most personal book. I was sharing stuff about the struggles, mental health, and there's stigma. Leaders are meant to look successful, models of wonderful living, got it all together. And here's this very personal story of struggle and how really, oh, I don't have much of an idea, but Jesus does. I could not send that thing for I think several days and I remember wrestling through it. I do not want to do this. Once I do this, it's out. Thousands of people are going to see what was really going on inside. That was a high cost, high growth moment. And finally, through the power of Jesus, I was able to hit send. Goes into production, editing, marketing. And then finally, I'm like over it. I'm like, oh, victory is here. This is wonderful. But then the moment when the book's actually about to be released comes back. And I go into an after battle. I land just as the first copies are going to media, I land in Los Angeles. Often when I land, first day I just try and walk around, readjust the circadian rhythms. I had a day just in LA walking around. I was gonna catch up with a friend for dinner. So I'm just getting the sun, walk around. I had a project I, I was super obsessed with at, the moment, at that time with the movie Blade Runner, and half of it was shot down in town LA. So I'm gonna walk around, find all the sites, and check this all out. Be in the sun, California sun, Melbourne's in rain, happy days. 
I wake up though, have my coffee, ready to go on my LA Blade Runner tour. And I'm linked into an article, and it's the first review of my book. Now, I've had bad reviews before, that's fine, like whatever, no, I'm just gonna love it, get over it. But this was the most personal, vulnerable book about a mental health challenge. And I remember this article in this, in this newspaper, big Christian newspaper in Australia, and I remember it just was, had this gold. And I remember it said, this book is an utter mess. And I remember sitting in this hotel room in LA and just utterly gutted and like, this is the after battle. God, why did you make me do this? And then I feel so exposed. And instead of like, thank you, Mark, for being so brave, you don't get that. You just get, this book is a mess. I remember wandering through LA downtown. It's like, oh, there's the Blade Runner building. Who cares? <laughs> just like wandering around. I remember I walked across. I don't know how I ended up there. It was just this small bridge which goes over this incredible, natural, beautiful part of LA, which is just a giant, stinking freeway. And walked over the freeway. And I'm halfway across and I'm just thinking about this and I just felt like in an absolute battle. God, why do you get me to do these things? God, I can't go on. This hurts too much. I thought I had the victory, but now I feel like I'm right back in it. I was halfway across this bridge and then I hate heights, like heights, not a fan. And I look left and right, it's just stories down to the LA freeway below and the bridge is actually really low. So I'm just like, the fear of heights kicks in. And I remember being in the middle of the bridge and I thought, I'm just gonna go back. But I looked back and it was equally equidistant from going back and going forward. And at that moment, that bridge crossing became a kind of living parable where God said, yep, this is the way of discipleship. You're not just gonna have one victory and then it's all gonna be hunky-dory. I'm asking you to go again. I'm asking you to walk with me through the after battle. High cost, high growth. And how I kept walking was I realized at that moment, this is not something I could achieve in my own strength. The incredible thing is that the way through the membrane which stops us from pursuing high cost, high growth, it's not through smarts, strength, it's actually through surrender. Surrender to Jesus. When you get to that moment, all you have to do is surrender. I thought of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke 22, verse 42, where he says, not my will, but your will be done. And I remember just walking forward and crossing that bridge and saying, God, if this book is lampooned, I say yes to you. I remember the moment being another city, I won't say the city because I don't want to expose the person, but I remember a person who had gone through the same challenges I had and their entire family drives two, three hours and comes and just says, thank you for sharing this story. I didn't feel good, they felt good. I went through pain so that others may get a sense of God's kingdom and his love for them. And so we find ourselves at this point, I think in the church, I think many of our personal lives, but we recognize those moments where there's rich veins and God's got us and we're growing. But also many of us in the last couple of years, many of us right now find ourselves at the point where before us is the true ways. Yes, surrender, submission, sacrifice it all for him because he sacrificed it all for us. By the way of the arena, spectatorship, 
It's actually high cost, but low growth. So what I'd like to do as we just finish now is recognize that many of us have been in this place. Many of you may be in that place now. Some of you may know and sense that one is coming. So what I'm going to ask is for you to stand. And we're just going to ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us now. We're going to ask the band to come. But I just sense as we finish this time that it's appropriate for us to spend time with him. Say yes to him. So what I'd love to do is just open up the front of the room. If you just want to come and kneel, come forward and just say yes. Some of you at this moment are at that crossroad of high cost, which God's going to bring high growth. We live in a world which sometimes tells us that the church is going to go forward with better smarts, better marketing, better ideas. But the reality is the church goes forward with greater surrender. So let's move into this moment. The floor at the front is open. Let's let this time be a time where if you feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to come, to kneel and say, yes, I give it all to you. Yes, I say yes to the narrow path. Yes the ancient path. Yes to the way that is of high cost, but incredible growth, where God may not give us the things that we want of this world, but he gives us his presence. He gives us his revelation. He gives us his power. He wants to build spiritual authority in this people at this time. We just need to say yes to him. So spirit, we pray, come. Come into our hearts. Jeremiah asked that the parts of the people of his time may be changed, and we pray that for us right now. We pray against the flesh, the parts of us which resist you, which reel back in pride or self-hatred, through overexertion or learned helplessness, which desire the things of the world. Father, we also know the enemy is prowling like a lion, particularly praying on those who find themselves at these key moments. And we just pray in Jesus' name that he be bound, that he may have no more access to anyone in this room, that his temptations, his accusations may fall short. And instead, may we hear your voice calling us forward to something deeper. May we not be afraid, because actually we've got nothing to lose sacrificing for you. Give us an eternal view, not the way of the world. Thank you that you invite us into your living temple of the Holy Spirit, the church, not just the arena. And whatever the future may bring, Father, we say yes to you, no matter what it may cost. And we know that it's costly following you in this life. So we just open this time now. May your spirit minister to every heart as it needs ministering to. In your name.